0: Well, what a difference 48 hours makes. You know, when I was recording the supplement to the podcast that I put up on Tuesday night, Iranian missiles were blowing up on U.S. Air Force bases in Iraq, and nobody knew what was going to happen next. People were worried what the United States might do in response, that now we were going to have this hot war in Iran. The Dow futures were down two 300 points. Crude oil was up three bucks. It was over $75 a barrel. Gold had moved up to an eight-year high. Gold got up to over 1,610, and everybody was uh, concerned. And then within a few hours, really, of my finishing up that podcast, the whole situation was miraculously diffused. I mean, first of all, Donald Trump came out with a tweet that basically said, all is well, nothing to worry about, which was a very calm tweet uh, for the president. A lot of people might have expected, oh, that's it. You know, war is on. I mean, they, they, you know, I told these guys not to do anything. And, you know, they. now I've got to, I'm going to put the hammer down. No, it was a very mild, held back tweet. Everything is fine, nothing to worry about. So that was one of the first things that happened to kind of calm everybody's nerves that, you know, Trump wasn't trigger happy as a result of uh, of this uh, this bombing. And then, you know, the Iranians, I think it was the following morning, they come out with a statement and they basically say, We're done. We got our revenge, right? This is revenge for the killing of Soleimani. And we're finished. And we don't want war. We don't want to escalate. So hopefully the United States doesn't do anything. And and we're all done, right? We're even Stephen. now. We got revenge. You you murdered uh, our general. And now we got revenge by, you know, launching these missiles uh, at your Air Force bases. Except, did they really get revenge? Because apparently... Nobody was injured. I mean, certainly nobody died, but nobody even got hurt. I don't even think there was a soldier who spilled coffee on his uniform as a result of of these missiles. In fact, I don't even think they blew anything up. I don't know. They just landed on, you know, on, on cement or something. I mean, to me, it seems that this is by design, right, that the Iranians didn't actually want to kill any Americans. And now they're saying that they didn't want to kill any Americans, but I don't even think they wanted to damage any American property. I mean, probably uh, the Ayatollah or his, uh, you know, aide probably contacted the U.S. to give them the heads up that the missiles were coming, and hey, these are the coordinates. Are you okay with that? I want to make sure that there's like no people there, and you know, we, that we don't actually damage any of your equipment, or maybe even uh, the U.S. you know gave the Iranians the coordinates of where they would do the least amount of damage. Because to me, this whole thing was orchestrated because uh, the Ayatollah had to do something, right? Because, you know, he, 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 he has to prove his, his manhood. Uh, he has to stand up to the infidels, to the terrorist Americans who murdered their general, right? He just can't be intimidated by Trump and America. So he has to show his own people that he's tough, right? So this is kind of a way for him to do that by launching these missiles. Everybody can see the missiles were launched. Uh, And now, you know, he's saved face and he stood up to Trump. Because remember, Trump said, hey, if you guys even threaten us, we're going to blow up your cultural centers. We've got 52 targets for all those hostages you held back in 1980. And not only did the Ayatollah not just threaten us, they actually launched missiles into our Air Force bases and nothing happened to them. So he called Trump's bluff as far as his own citizens are concerned. And now to the Iranians, he looks like a hero. In fact, I think they're trying to play up the significance of this insignificant uh, bombing, uh, you know, locally in, in Iran. But I mean, how is this really revenge, right? They're claiming that they've satisfied the, the code of honor and they've got their revenge. Well, we killed their general. How did they get revenge? I mean, all they did is waste maybe a dozen or more of their missiles. I mean, how much did they spend to buy those missiles? And then they blew them up for no reason. That doesn't seem like revenge to me. In fact, the only people they managed to kill were the civilians who were on that Ukrainian aircraft, right? And many of them, I think 82 of the 167 passengers on that uh, Boeing 737 were Iranian citizens. I mean, so how do you get revenge, right? This is the idea, this is their revenge. We kill their general, and they take revenge by killing 82 of their own citizens in addition to the one that we killed. So clearly, they didn't get any revenge. But maybe the way they're presenting it, they're creating the illusion, right, this is all propaganda in Iran, that they got revenge. And I think the Ayatollah looks better now. We actually are helping. What we did actually makes this guy look better in the eyes of his own people because he took revenge on the United States. He wasn't uh, intimidated. Uh, and and see, and obviously, you know, what we've done to the uh, reputation of Soleimani. I mean, this guy is going to be far more in death than he was in life. I mean, he's going to be a huge national hero now, a martyr, right? I mean, they're going to be having this guy's picture. He's going to be enshrined. He's like, he's like, you know, canonized as a saint, probably. Uh, they're going to use this uh, for a long time. And I don't think that the situation is completely as diffused as everybody believes. I still think the world today is less safe than it was before we took out um, the general. I mean, yeah, I, I accept the fact that he was a bad guy, but um, his death may not you know, make the world safer. It may make it a more dangerous place. I think that the odds of a terrorist attack whether by Iranians or any of the terrorists in the Middle East. I think because we did that, there's probably a greater likelihood that we're going to get a hit by terrorist attack because this is just another reason for the terrorists to want to get us, right? To get some real revenge because, you know, the Ayatollah didn't get any actual revenge because no American blood was spilled, so there may be some terrorists that want to spill some American blood and to get more revenge. And also I think that this killing will act as a recruitment tool to make it easier for terrorist organizations to recruit young men because, you know, hey, we killed this great guy in their mind and we're evil terrorists ourselves. And so it kind of helps bring more people to the cause. Now, also, I was reading in uh, the comment section of uh, my last podcast up on YouTube and somebody put a comment in there basically saying, was I upset? that we're not going to have a war, right? Because I recorded the last podcast and, you know, the missiles were flying and maybe there was going to be a war. And so the guy was saying, hey, am I, am I upset that we're not at war? Because, you know, gold went down and I'm going to benefit uh, from war because I have gold stocks. And so am I now, am I upset that we're not getting the war that would have benefited me? And, of course, the answer to that question is, no, I'm not upset. I am relieved. I do not want war, right? I'm You know, I don't want bad things to happen just because— I profit from them. That's not the type of person that I am. I mean, I'm prepared for war in my portfolio if we have one, but I'm not rooting for it. I don't want it. Now, there are other things that I am rooting for that a lot of people would think would be bad, but they're not bad. See, I want this bubble to pop sooner rather than later. See, I know it's going to pop eventually, but I know that the longer it takes, the worse it's going to be, right? So I want to swallow the medicine Now, not a year from now or five years from now, the sooner we stop digging ourselves into this hole, the sooner we can get out of it. So if I am rooting for, you know, the bubble to pop, it's not because I want bad things to happen because I'm a bad person or because I'm gonna profit from those bad things. I recognize that a bad recession now, as bad as it's gonna be, is better than an even worse recession later. So let's get it over with. Let's bite the bullet. Yes, I will profit from that right? It's better than losing from that. I will profit even more if we succeed in kicking the can down the road. And then the collapse happens when the problems are bigger, when the imbalances are bigger, and then it's even worse. I want to get it done now. But that doesn't mean I'm rooting for bad things. I'm rooting for good things. Because in this case, a bad thing is a good thing. The sooner we can have a real recession, the sooner we can have a real recovery, right? So it's not if if I want a drug addict to get healthy, well, then they're going to have to quit the habit and go to rehab, and now they're not going to have a good time, but that's a good thing. It's a positive. Neither side will benefit from war. right? The only beneficiary is the military-industrial complex. right? They profit from war, which is why they back politicians who are willing to wage them. But the people don't benefit. The people lose. And so I don't want to have a war today because it's better than having a war tomorrow. I don't want a war at all. And so I'm never rooting for war. Just like I'm not rooting for hurricanes or earthquakes or fires. I mean, yes, I mean, in a way, those things are probably on the margin good for the gold market. But that doesn't mean I want these bad things to happen. I don't. I want good things to happen. And in the case of this bubble economy, the best thing that can happen is that the bubble pops. Now, is that going to be difficult for a lot of people? Yes, it's going to be difficult, but it's inevitable. It's just going to be better if it happens sooner because it's less difficult, right? And what I want to do is out of the ashes of this ruin, I want to rebuild something better, rebuild something stronger. I want to you know, help kind of shape public opinion and hopefully lead the way back to a prosperous America that can rediscover its roots. I really would like to see America great again. I just don't want to pretend that America is great. I want America to be great. But we're not going to be great until this bubble pops, until we get away from central planning and central banking and go back to the principles, the free market, limited government, sound money principles that made this country great in the past will never be great again in the future. So I think that, you know, this is all a, a, a political theater that is playing out, but not just in Iran, but here in the United States, right? Because, you know, Trump looks like, hey, he's the hero. Uh, you know, we didn't go to war. He, he wasn't that trigger happy. Uh, and of course, Trump, when he initially described the reasons that they took this guy out, right, why they uh, killed Soleimani, they said that it was because he represented an imminent threat to the United States, like he was in Iraq, specifically to plot this killing, right? And that they they had the intelligence to show that there was this plot, and that they had to kill him in order to save these lives. Because if they didn't kill him, then they would have carried out uh, the plot. Although I don't know if they actually had a plot, couldn't they carry it out after he died? I mean, didn't, he, didn't anybody else know about the plan? Or did everybody who knew about it, were they, were they all, you know, in that car uh, that blew up? But Trump was claiming that there was some intel and there was an actual reason uh, that they took the guy out. And he said that he was going to uh, you know, inform the Senate and let them know what his reason was. So I think it was yesterday, he had a meeting with the Senate and supposedly to give them the intelligence about why they had to take uh, Soleimani out. And they gave him nothing. I mean, I'm reading the statements coming out from, from Rand Paul and, and Mike Lee, who are furious about the fact that not only did they not give them any information, any intelligence. They basically just said, look, you got to stand behind us. You don't want to look weak to the Iranians. You know, we just just be, stand behind the president, despite the fact that we're not actually giving you any information that, that validates our decision to kill this guy. We're just, you know, asking you to support us just, you know, just to be a good team player. And, you know, Rand Paul didn't want to do it, or Mike Lee didn't want to do it. Uh, and, and so to me, that was just a lie. As I said, you know, I don't believe uh, the stuff that Trump says because politicians lie. Look, just like the Ayatollah is going to lie to his own people about how he got revenge and, you know, and all that, Trump lies to us, and it's not unique to Trump. Bush lied to us. Obama lied to us. All these guys lie. That's what politics is all about. Right? How do you know a politician is lying? His lips are moving. Right? The politicians who are honest, they don't get elected, right? See, that was my problem. Right? I'm an I was an honest politician. That's why I'm an unemployed politician. I didn't win because I wasn't willing to lie. The people who succeed in politics are good liars. And the reason that Trump did so well, right, even though he didn't have a lot of experience, is because he probably had a lot of experience lying. And so he was able to incorporate that experience into his campaign. So not only was he a good marketer, but he was a successful liar. And you combine those two, and you can be very successful in politics. So everybody is witnessing uh, this political theater. But in the meantime, When that tension was diffused, when people realized, wait a minute, we're not going to have this war, gold sold off, oil sold off, the stock market reversed. In fact, today, the Dow was up, I think, about another 200 points. This is a new uh, all-time record high, uh, both for the NASDAQ, uh, the Dow, the S&P. The Dow almost made it to 29,000. The high was 28,988. We closed at 28,956. So almost 29,000. We're within spitting distance of 30,000. And, you know, the president is really going to be tweeting up a storm when the Dow hits 30,000, right? I mean, he is like waiting for that because he's going to claim credit for that entire rally. And one of the reasons that we might get that rally is because now people are convinced that the good news is that the Iranian situation has been completely diffused and now everything is peaceful. And so if you were worried about a problem in Iran... Well, now you don't have to worry. And you can go buy stocks, right? Because now all of a sudden people have to price out the fact that they were nervous. But I still think that the risk premiums for crude, for gold should be a little bit higher because I do think that there is more geopolitical risk in the world. Now, there's not as much as there was uh, 48 hours ago, you know, when those uh, missiles were, were in the air, right? Uh, certainly it has been de-escalated since then. And it makes sense that the safe havens have come down in price. It makes sense that oil had come down in price. What doesn't make sense, though, is what happened to the gold stocks. They got obliterated on Tuesday. Now, anybody who listened to my uh, podcast on Tuesday night or on Wednesday, rather, yesterday, but anybody who listened to my podcast Tuesday night, if you bought my gold fund, which is what I was recommending that people do, so long as they're you know, willing to you know, accept the consequences of loss, right? It's, it's not for everybody. you got to be an aggressive investor and don't invest money that you can't afford to lose a significant portion of. But to the extent that uh, my gold fund is suitable for you and you bought some, you got a great price because the fund was down over 4% yesterday. You know, when you buy a mutual fund, you buy at the close, right? So since the gold stocks closed on the low of the day, even if you put your buy order in on the open, you got filled when the stocks were, you know, on their lows. So people got really good fills uh, who bought yesterday because the gold stocks got hammered uh, because of that. In fact, if you look at where gold is trading right now, as I am speaking, uh, gold is trading at $1,552 an ounce, right? It was down about 4 bucks today on top of like maybe the 10 bucks it was down yesterday. But the big drop was not on the day. It was from the high. Right, the high was over sixteen ten. So we had a drop from sixteen ten uh to 15 to fifteen forty. That's a seventy dollar drop within a twenty-four hour period in the price of gold. And so I think what the gold traders were looking at was the seventy dollar drop. They weren't paying attention to the fact that we just set a new eight year high and that we had just broken above fifteen fifty resistance. They weren't focusing on the good news, they were focusing on the bad news. And this is how a barrel, a bull market works. It climbs a wall of worry. And there's probably no more worry, I think, than in the gold mining sector. I mean, nobody is worried. None of the bulls are worried uh, who are buying the S&P and bidding up the NASDAQ, right? They're not worried. Uh, But the gold investors are worried. And in fact, gold, this calendar year, right, 2020, the price of gold is up by better than 2%. That's not a bad start to the year. I mean, we're what? We're we're barely a week into the year and you've already got 2% up in the price of gold. That's pretty good. Normally, a 2% move up in the price of gold would send gold stocks up 4%. But it sent them down by 4%. The GDX is down 4.2% year to date. The GDXJ, which is junior gold miners, is down 4.8% year to date. Gold stocks are doing terrible despite the fact that Gold itself has been doing well. In fact, the CEO of Newmont Mining was on CNBC Today. And I talked about Newmont Mining on my last podcast because they had just jacked up their dividend by about 80%. And the guy made a very compelling case for the company. He didn't really talk about why the price of gold was going to go up, just you know how much money they're making at $1,500 gold because everything was budgeted for $1,200 gold. And now they have all this money and they're going to be able to raise their dividends and do all this stuff. And, and so after the interview was over, and I'm not really sure the name of the woman who was interviewing her, but obviously she's, you know, she's she's following the market. And after the interview was over, she said, hmm, I just I just pulled up a, a quote on Newmont Mining. And this thing was up 50% last year. I wonder why I didn't know about that. I mean, this thing isn't even on my screen. I mean, I had no idea. She's like, she asked somebody else. Does that, did anybody else know that this stock was up 50% last year? Hmm. Maybe I should look at buying it. I don't know. I mean, I don't own any gold stocks, but you know, maybe 50%, maybe I should take a look at it. Maybe I should put it on my screen and, and start following it. I mean, this is how crazy it is that these people on CNBC, they don't even look at these gold stocks. They don't even have the symbols on their screen. They have no idea what they are doing. So this is a stealth bull market that's going on, but everybody is worried. You know, what they're talking about now on, uh, on CNBC is... The blow-off top. I heard yesterday. Lots of people were saying we had a blow-off top in gold. Blow-off means kind of the end of a mania, like it's the last gasp, right? We had, we finally, all the the bulls just rushed in and just bought, and then we sold off, and it's a blow-off top, right? This isn't even close to a blow-off top. This is just a new high in a bull market. That's all it is. There was this is not a crazy rally. Gold wasn't up hundreds of dollars, and it was up like $35 or something at the highs. That's not that much. Nothing got blown off, right? But this this is, again, typical of a bull market climbing a wall of worry. People are afraid, and and, and they dump their gold stocks. They are a fantastic buy, right? Because here's the way I look at it. We've just had a $70 correction, and we're still at $15.50. The correction could be over. Remember, I talked about that on some of my other podcasts. I said, "What if the correction is from 1600 to 1550?" And that's what we've had, you know, because when we originally hit 1550, gold stocks started selling off because people were afraid of a correction. Well, we've just had a correction, and we're still at 1550. We worked off a lot of the excesses. We had a big decline, yet the price is still 1550. So I think we still have lots of upside left to go in gold. This is a young bull market with lots of uh, fear and and doubt, which is exactly what you want. And uh, you know, if you didn't buy my gold fund uh, yesterday, buy it tomorrow, you know, because it's, gold is is as high as it was when I when I first talked about this breakout, when I said gold, I think the title of my podcast two podcasts ago was Gold Climbs a Wall of Worry to 1550. Well, gold stocks are a lot lower now than they were when it hit 1550 on the way up. Now it hit 1550 on the way down. That's even more powerful because now 1550 is more support, whereas it used to be resistance. And of course, I'm not the only one. You know, there are other people out there that are saying this. You know, Jeff Gunlock was, uh, you know, he did a, an, an investor update the other day, very, very bullish on gold. In fact, his investment thesis is, you know, pretty much the same as mine. I mean, he's saying that. What is going to his big call for 2020, right? His high conviction trade is that the U.S. dollar goes down. And I agree with him. I mean, I think the U.S. dollar, I mean, it should have gone down last last year. So it's going to go down this year. But he's saying that people should buy commodities. They should buy foreign stocks. They should buy emerging markets. They should buy gold stocks. That's my entire portfolio. Those are what my mutual funds are. My managed accounts. It's exactly what Jeff Gunlock is saying that people should do. I'm doing it. I'm taking his advice. Uh, or vice versa. But, you know, another interesting thing about what Jeff Gunlock said, he brought up what the biggest risk was that he thought uh, people were ignoring, right, downplaying. And the big risk in his mind was a Bernie Sanders victory. He said the market is not pricing in the possibility that Bernie Sanders is the next president, which is exactly what I have been saying on my podcast. I'm saying there is a risk. I think Sanders can win. I think people are underestimating uh, the possibility that he will win. And because he does have a high possibility of winning, the, where is the market mechanism to discount that? Because if he wins, the market's going to collapse. I mean, even the most ardent bulls you know, would agree that if Bernie Sanders becomes president, which means he's probably also going to get a Democratic Senate, that that is very, very bad for the market, that they're going to jack up corporate taxes they're gonna jack up taxes on high earners and it's gonna stifle economic growth. It's gonna reduce the value of corporations. So people have to concede that if Sanders wins, the market's going down. Yet the market is going up, 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 completely ignoring the possibility that, that Sanders might win. And that's what Jeff Gunlock is saying. Same thing as me, that, hey, this is a possibility. This could happen, yet there's no pricing this in. And you know, one of the reasons that I think the public is just underestimating the appeal of of socialism, is they just don't realize how much America has changed and how popular this ideology has has really become. Look, I have an 18-year-old niece who is a freshman in college, and she's a socialist. I mean, she went to the rally, I think it was yesterday or two days ago in New York City, uh, for Elizabeth Warren. I mean, she's whole hog, feels the burn. I mean, she's 100% Democratic Socialist and she's my niece, right? I mean, so obviously, I mean, she must have some knowledge of free market capitalism and Austrian economics. I mean, I'm her uncle. Um, I mean, I don't have as much influence over her as I do over my son, who's a senior uh, graduating high school this year, who's very much, uh, you know, a free market oriented guy, uh, not a socialist. In fact, a lot of you follow him on uh, Twitter, Spencer Schiff, if you don't follow him, you should. He has a lot of very insightful tweets. Uh, he constantly looks over the economic data, the market data. And and so, you know, you definitely should follow him on Twitter. So I've been able to influence my son and, you know, like my father influenced me, but I've had absolutely no influence whatsoever on my niece. And of course, my brother has had no influence on her. And, you know, my brother, Andy Schiff, co-authored with me how an economy grows and why it crashes. So you would imagine that my niece, my brother's daughter, would have read the book that her father co-authored, right? I mean, just, you know, you might as well read it. Your father writes a book. I mean, the least you could do is read it. So I'm sure she's read the book, yet, you know, she's still a socialist. So my point is, if my own niece is a socialist, then think about how compelling socialism is for people who have no idea who I am, who I haven't influenced at all. And it's not like, you know, she's the only socialist. All of her friends are socialists. Socialism is extremely popular uh, with young people. And a lot of the people who were young 10 years ago, well, now they're not as young, but they're still socialists. And, you know, why are we even surprised that our schools are turning out socialists? Because government education is a socialist concept, right? We've turned over the education of our children to the government. And the government teaches them that the government is better than the free market, right? You have a bunch of socialist teachers teaching socialism to a bunch of young, impressionable kids who don't have any real life experience. And socialism really appeals to uh, your sense of fairness and your emotions, right? You don't have the real world experience and the intellect, you you know, you you haven't developed to the point where you understand the unintended consequences of all this, you know, so-called, you know, Uh, good deeds that they want to do. So they're very impressionable and they're socialists and they vote and they work on campaigns. They don't just vote. They volunteer their time. Right. That's also an important thing. When you have a lot of kids that are energized, they help the campaign. They're free volunteers. They get out to vote. Right. So all of the Sanders, if he's, you know, he gets the nomination, he's going to have lots of very enthusiastic, motivated young people that are going to be working on his campaign far more than than Donald Trump's going to have. And, you know, the other problem with socialism is capitalist countries create a lot of wealth, right? I mean, socialist countries create no wealth, but capitalist countries create a lot of wealth. But when you create a lot of wealth, you also create a lot of wealth inequality because not everybody is equal, right? Now, of course, we wouldn't have as much inequality if we had real capitalism than the crony capitalism we have now, where the Federal Reserve is making the disparity greater than it normally would be. But in a free market, right, people have different degrees of ability and intelligence and not everybody is, is motivated and works as hard. And of course, there's the degree of luck. Sometimes not everybody gets lucky, right? But you, so people are going to have different outcomes. Some people are going to be rich. Some people won't be as rich. Some people might be poor. But on a relative basis, the poor people in a rich capitalist society are wealthier than everybody else in a, in a poor socialist society. But when you have these differences, then you have envy, you have jealousy, right? And then you have an opportunity for a politician to feed off of that and try to you know, promise, hey, these rich, greedy people, they exploited and let's take some of their money and you're more deserving, right? That's what happens uh, when you have wealth that's created by capitalism. When you live in a socialist uh, economy. Everybody is poor, so you don't have to be jealous of anybody. I mean, your neighbor is just as broke as you are, so you don't have to envy him for anything. He doesn't have anything that you don't have. I mean, in a socialist society, the only people that have anything are the people that work for the government, right? They're politically connected. That's who gets the rewards. It's the people who have the right connections. In a capitalist society, the people who get the most reward are the people who are the most productive. They contribute the most to society, so they take the most out. It's the the most honest system out there where people are rewarded, not according to their intentions, but according to what they actually produce, the value they actually add to society. You create products, you provide services that people value, and you get rewarded for doing that, right? It's a complete meritocracy if we have real capitalism. It's when the government gets involved. But the problem is everybody is voting. And the appeal of socialism, despite the fact that it's failed every time it's been tried, I mean, that's part of the problem. You would think that these kids would learn some history in school, but they don't. I mean, I've often, you know, pondered this, and I think I've spoken about it. But, you know, when it comes to hard sciences, right, every generation doesn't have to start from scratch and relearn what the previous generation learned. Every generation builds on the knowledge accumulated by the generations before it. So, we're not constantly starting over again. So, our knowledge of science gets better and better, right? And so, the technology keeps getting better. The, the products that we're able to produce get better and better because we build upon what our parents learned and what their grandparents learned. But when it comes to economic understanding, every generation starts from scratch. It's like a clean slate, it's like nothing ever happened in the past because every mistake that was made in the past gets repeated in the present. We don't have any greater understanding of economics now than 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 500 years ago. It doesn't matter, right? It's like we're starting from scratch and everybody forgets what everybody else learned. So there is no real advancement, right? We keep trying socialism over and over again and expecting it to work, which of course is the definition of insanity, right? Trying something over and over again and expecting a different result. Except it's not the same people that are trying it over and over again. Usually when you try socialism yourself, And it fails, you don't want to do it again. But if you actually live in a capitalist country that hasn't tried socialism, you always think it's great. And if it didn't work someplace else, well, it's because the right people weren't in charge, right? You're going to do it better because you're more caring uh, than the other people. Look at the example of what's happening right now then in Chile. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but you can go online. uh, And over the last several months, a lot of riots, a lot of political chaos going on in Chile, uh, led by a lot of young people, college students that are protesting uh, inequality, income inequality, which, of course, you're always going to have. And they want more government. They want the government to step in and solve all these problems that they believe are the result of too much capitalism and too much, too much income inequality. Except the problem is that Chile is the richest economy in South America. And the reason that they are the richest economy in South America is because they are the freest economy. In South America. Now, they, it wasn't always that way. Right, They went through kind of like a revolution where they moved away from socialism. They, they moved more towards freedom. And as a result, their economy boomed. Their standard of living went up. Everybody's income went up, but of course, not equally. And so now you have people protesting. Uh, they want better health care or they want better or cheaper education or whatever it is that they want, but they want the government to provide it. But the reality is all the things that these protesters want, Right? If they actually get what they want in terms of more government, all the problems that they think government is going to solve, the government will make worse. See, the reason that things aren't even better in Chile is because they still have too much government. They still have too many regulations right? that they can remove. They still have all these government-guaranteed monopolies in all sorts of ways the government undermines the productivity that would otherwise come from an even freer market than the one they have. Yes, they're not as screwed up as Argentina or Brazil, Right? because they have less government than those countries, but they, they certainly have more government than they need. They could have even less. What the students should really be protesting is too much government. They should be demanding more freedom, not more government, because if they want more government, A, they'll get it, but B, the things that they want government to do, better health care, better education, whatever, they're not going to get that. It's going to be worse. If you want your life to get better then you want less government and more freedom because free market capitalism is what creates wealth and everybody benefits from wealth creation not uh, at the same proportion but everybody still benefits right but when government comes in and destroys wealth then everybody loses but it's also you know hard to blame you know all these young kids for not understanding economics I mean it's you know a lot of people don't understand it I mean look I was watching on on CNBC today, Right, looking at a discussion, an economic discussion, uh, between a lot of the you know top e- economists or you know, they're Steve Leisman, who's a senior economist, and some other guys, and they're all having an economic discussion. And I'm listening to this thing, and, and none of these guys have any idea what they're talking about. I mean, they don't know anything about basic economics. I mean, they know what they learned in college, but what they learned in college is wrong because the guy that taught it to them doesn't really understand anything about economics. And so there is so much ignorance about economics in the mainstream, right? That's why they're not buying gold, right? They don't understand, you know, oh, why is gold going up? Gold should go down. You know, gold is not going up because of the stuff going on in Iran. I mean, yes, if you are worried about geopolitical uncertainty, you may want to have more defensive assets in your portfolio. You may want a safe haven. So that is going to marginally increase the demand for gold. But what's really driving the demand for gold and what nobody on CNBC seems to understand is what's driving the demand for gold is the Federal Reserve and other central banks who are creating too much fiat currency. They are debasing the currency by design. The central bankers are telling you, we want prices to go up by more than 2% a year, which means they say, we want to destroy the value of your savings by more than 2% a year. Well, if you don't want the value of your savings destroyed, what do you do? Well, you save gold instead because they can't print gold. They can't debase gold. Now, there was a time where even if there was inflation, you can put your money in the bank and you can earn interest that exceeded the rate of inflation. And so you can still stay ahead of the game, but you can't do that anymore. Even if you're lucky enough to get interest, The interest is so low that it's still below the rate of inflation. So you might as well own gold. The cost to store gold with a third party, right, is much lower than the annual rate of inflation. So the storage costs for gold, and of course, you can store gold yourself and it costs you nothing. But even if you pay a third party to store it, the fee is very small. Maybe you pay 10 basis points, 20 basis points, right? Inflation is 2%, 3%, 4%. So it's much cheaper to pay somebody to store your gold than to allow the government to steal your purchasing power 2% plus per year. And that's if you believe the government's phony numbers, which I don't, uh, the real erosion of purchasing power is even higher than that. So that is what's driving uh, the price of gold. And it's not just all the inflation that is being created today, but gold investors are discounting the increased levels of inflation. That these governments will create in the future because the problems are getting bigger, right? The debts are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which means the amount that they're going to have to monetize is going to get bigger and bigger. So if central banks are determined to prevent interest rates from rising so that governments and citizens can keep going deeper and deeper into debt, then the amount of money that's going to be printed in the future is going to be much more than what's being printed now. So today's inflation is going to be exceeded by tomorrow's inflation. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And so gold prices are just going to go higher and higher and higher. The question is, when is the mainstream going to wake up? When are people like this woman who was interviewing the CEO of Newmont, when is she going to add a gold stock to her screen so she can even pay attention to what gold stocks are doing? Because right now, it's not on anybody's radar. But eventually it will be. When we get a big enough rise, when gold stocks have tripled or quadrupled, when gold's above 2,000, and when we're getting a correction in the U.S. stock market, stocks are going down, bonds are going down, then I think a lot of these guys will start paying attention to gold stocks. But I want my listeners to pay attention to them now so they can buy them now instead of waiting until they're tripled the price and then buy them. Why not buy them before they go up instead of after? But you know what? Even if you wait till they triple in price and then you buy, I think you're still going to make money because I think we have a lot more than a triple uh, coming from a lot of these stocks because gold is going to go through the roof because the dollar is going to go through the floor. In fact, I said that exactly on uh, the Charles Payne show making money yesterday. If you didn't see that live on Fox Business, I got it up on my uh, YouTube channel. It's only like a three and a half minute interview. You know, you don't get a lot of time when you're on one of these networks, right? You have a little segment and, and, but you know, I got, I got enough in, I got to talk about gold. It was good to be on, uh, on with Charles. He's a nice guy. So you can check that out on my, my YouTube channel. Now also, you know, we're getting some economic data out tomorrow. Uh, the non-farm uh, payroll numbers, the December jobs report was delayed. Normally it comes out on the first Friday of the month. That would have been last week, but for some reason, maybe because it was a holiday shortened week, we're getting the number tomorrow I'm not going to be doing a podcast tomorrow. I'm going to spend most of the day uh, traveling. I'm going back finally to uh, Puerto Rico. I've been here in Connecticut for the past few weeks. And, you know, I'm finally, I guess have had my fill of the winter. And so I won't be back in Connecticut again probably until May. And I'll be spending the rest of the time uh, at my home in Puerto Rico. Some people have uh, uh, texted me or posted, you know, am I okay? You know, we had some big earthquakes there. We had a couple of six, six 6.1 or 6.5, and I wasn't there. I thank people for, uh, cons- you know, thinking about me. Uh, but as far as I know, there's been no damage. Um, I've talked to some people who are there, and everything seems okay. The only problem was the power went out and the water went out, so hopefully that'll be on Uh, By the time I get back, but I do have my own generator. We have a cistern, so I can survive on my own power and my own water if I have to. But for the sake of uh, a lot of the other people who live in Puerto Rico, I hope that all the water and power uh, is on uh, as soon as possible. So I won't be able to uh, do a podcast tomorrow uh, in reaction to the jobs report, but I will talk about it on the very next podcast that I do. But what I want to talk about to finish up today's podcast is this lawsuit that was filed in in California to try to delay the implementation of this new law where California, uh, really, they meant to target the gig economy because Uber and uh, another company, I think, are also suing the state of California to say that this law is unconstitutional. But basically, the law is defining what an employee is in such a way that all the Uber drivers can't be independent contractors, right? They would have to be employees. But a lot more than just Uber drivers are getting caught up in this net. Uh, One group are freelance uh, journalists, people who write articles and then they submit them uh, to publications or websites and they just get paid, you know, by the word, by the article, whatever it is. And they're not employees. They're independent contractors and they just, you know, get paid uh, and, you know, they're self-employed. Well, according to the new law in California, if you do more than 30 submissions uh, a year, which would be like, what, three a month, you'd be over. You'd be at 36, right? So if you do, if you do three submissions a month, which is not even one a week, then you're an employee. And now the, the uh, company that you're submitting to has to hire you as an employee. And of course, maybe you're submitting your stuff to three or four different uh, websites, and now every one of them has to hire you as an employee, Now, of course, a lot of these are probably small companies. You know, they're not even in the state of California. They have no presence there. They don't want to have to file in California and register as an employer and go through all the added expense of being a tax collector for the state of uh, California. So what they're going to do is they're just not going to want to hire uh, uh, freelancers in California or use their submissions. I mean, they basically are going to put a cap. You can submit 30 articles to us per year. And once you hit 30, we're not going to take any more. Right. So this is obviously going to interfere with the freelancer's ability to make a living. And so that's why they're filing the lawsuit. Now, when I first heard about it, I, you know, I don't really know a lot of the details, because to me, it seemed like there's a lot of latitude here, because, you know, instead of submitting, let's say, three articles a month, what if you submit one, but it just has, you know, three seg- parts, A, B and C, right? And they can, they can you know, peel, peel them off and use them as three separate articles, even though you submitted it as one article. But, you know, maybe the, the, the sites want more timely articles. I mean, maybe what creates a lot of value for these guys is that they can they can put an article that's relevant to something that happened today, and then it gets more money. And then, you know, so they have to be more timely, and maybe the submissions have to be more frequent. And so this this law really is going to inhibit the ability for you to provide a lot of timely content if you happen to be living in the state of California. So they filed this lawsuit, and what happened today is the judge threw it out and said, nope, uh, you know, we're not going to give you any relief. We're not going to grant you a a temporary restraining order to protect you from this law. You have to, uh, you know, be subject to the law. But the irony of it is, and the real reason I want to talk about it, is the government in California, when they passed this law, They say they're doing it to benefit the workers, right? Because they're saying the workers are being taken advantage of. They're being exploited, right? They want to be employees. But these mean, greedy employers, you know, they don't want to give them the benefits that come from employment, right? They don't want to have all the protections that come from employees. And so they're forcing them to be independent contractors. And so California is supposedly coming to their rescue by passing this new law that says you can't do that. You have to have them as employees. You can't have them as independent contractors, except these independent contractors are the ones that are filing the lawsuit. They're saying, exempt us from the law. I don't want your help. I don't want your protection. Because the reality is they want to be independent contractors. They don't want to be employees. It it benefits everybody. I mean, if they wanted to be an employee, I'm sure they can find somebody somewhere who would hire them. I think a lot of people who are independent contractors appreciate the added flexibility that comes with that status, right? So they benefit from this relationship too. The only real loser is the state of California because they're losing tax revenue. Because when you employ somebody, there are payroll taxes, uh, unemployment, all kinds of other things that end up benefiting the government. But with the independent contractor, the government doesn't get that cut. So the reason that the government wants people to be employees and not independent contractors is not for the benefit of the independent contractor. They're actually going to suffer if they're forced to be an employee when they'd prefer to be an independent contractor. In fact, in the case of a lot of these freelance writers, the only way they can continue their occupation is if they move out of the state of California and and live in a freer state where this uh, requirement is not imposed. And they can submit as many uh, articles as they want and not have to uh, be an employee when they're going to have a hard time finding, uh, uh, you know, small companies that are willing to incur the added expense of employing them. They'll just, you know, they'll just buy submissions from other uh, independent contractors that are living in in other states. Uh, So, but it's the government that benefits. They pretend they want to benefit the people, but they really want to benefit themselves. In fact, another big benefit is that a lot of times when people are independent contractors, they might not be reporting all their income. They may not be paying their taxes. Because when you're an employee, the employer withholds the taxes from your paycheck and sends it directly to the government. So there's not a real opportunity there for you to evade your taxes. But if the company just sends you a check and takes nothing out, well, then what if you don't pay the taxes? So when the government wants more people as employees is because they want to make it harder for people to not pay their taxes they know they have a better chance of getting taxes from people if the taxes are taken from their paycheck before they even get the money and sent directly to sacramento when the guy gets the entire paycheck what if what if sacramento doesn't get it what if he doesn't file but also what happens is when you are an independent contractor and you're self-employed you have your own business a lot of your revenue gets expensed out because now a lot of the things that you do are deductible. And so even though you might collect, let's say $50,000 in fees for the articles that you submit, what if you generate a bunch of deductions? You know, you you have your home office, you have your car, you have transportation, you have the internet connection, uh, you have periodicals or things that you uh, subscribe to, uh, continuing education courses that you're taking. You have all sorts of stuff. And what if you end up reducing that $50,000 of income, to $20,000 of taxable income. Well, now they're only going to get taxes on $20,000. But for employees, it's much harder to deduct stuff. And so a much higher percentage of the gross revenue is going to be taxable income. So all of this is about more money for the government. The entire effort to try to force companies to reclassify independent contractors as employees has nothing to do with benefiting the independent contractors. Because a lot of these independent contractors are better off as independent contractors. They will be worse off as employees. The only one that will be better off is the state of California. But of course, they can't admit that, right? They can't tell the truth that they're just trying to raise taxes. So they have to wrap this whole thing up in in in, in, in this bow of oh we care about the workers right this is this is to benefit uh, workers and we want to force these greedy corporations to employ people as opposed to exploit them as contractors. Meanwhile, the very people who are supposedly being exploited hired a lawyer to sue the government to prevent this law from going into effect. Clearly proving that the law is not benefiting the independent contractors. They are doing whatever they can to try to escape having to be made subject to this law. And of course, you know, the same thing works with uh, the minimum wage law. The people who suffer the most from the minimum wage law are low-skilled workers who are priced out of the job market because of the minimum wage. It's the same thing. You know, I wish a lot of these low-income people uh, were smart enough or maybe somebody could file a lawsuit on their behalf uh, and, and sue the states or even the federal government saying that they have a right to work. They, they, they can't get a job because of the minimum wage. The government has priced them out of the job market. Therefore, this law must be unconstitutional because if I have a right to life, liberty and happiness, then I have a right to pursue employment because I can't fulfill my rights of happiness and life and liberty without a job and you have passed a law, a minimum wage law, that is actually preventing me from getting a job. It's making it illegal for people to hire me. And so there should be some kind of relief from the courts to strike down this law because it's clearly unconstitutional for a number of reasons, Uh, least of all what I just said, your right to life, liberty and happiness. You can't have these things if you don't have a job. And if you don't have any skills, you can't get a job as long as the minimum wage is preventing you from becoming employed.